it happens every year, students bring with them stuff they should have left behind at home. And then this year's no exception. Some of you brought with you some stuff you, you really shouldn't have brought. You brought some contraband material. Now, what you don't realize is that over the weekend, I had some help rummaging through your dorms, gathering up all of this contraband material, and I've got it all right here in this duffel bag. All of your stuff that you should have left behind in this duffel bag are your gods. The gods you brought with you that you should have just left behind. Let's open up and take a peek. We'll start with the easy God to pick on. There's the sports God. For some of you, your God is your game. Maybe you're a student athlete, and what gets you out of bed in the morning is your God. You came to this campus to worship your God. You traded the God of heaven for the God of the hoop or maybe the God of the court, or the field, or the course. But for others of us, it's not the game that we play, it's the game we watch. We will religiously watch every single game that our team plays, three hours at a time. And then we will gather with 70,000 other pilgrims to this place of worship, and we will shout at the top of our lungs to the gods we adore. For many of us, We've begun to bow down to the sports god. For you, though, maybe it's, maybe it's the entertainment god. It's a, a game console. It's Netflix. It's Hulu. You might know if you're bowing down to the entertainment god if entertainment is what you turn to after a long day. If it's where you go for comfort. If it's where you try to drown out your pain and your hurt. Some of you have been bowing down to the God of entertainment. You can stay up into the wee hours of the morning playing a game or binging the latest season of your favorite show, but you're snoozing your way through your theological education. But, but others, it's, it's the God of academic achievement. You're living for that diploma that you'll earn the grades that you're gonna receive, the scholarship that you've been granted. For some of you, you're more interested in the recognition that you get from your professors than from God. And if that's true, you've begun to bow down to the God of academic achievement. For others, it's the God of future family. You will do anything to hold on to this picture that you have in your mind of this family that is one day going to be yours, even if that means staying in an unhealthy relationship, even if it means compromising your integrity, your character, or your morals. You've begun to bow down to the God of future family. For others, it's the God of sexual satisfaction. You wait till everybody else is asleep, you find a quiet place and you just scroll and you scroll and you scroll. Maybe it's not scrolling though, maybe it's just in your mind. 
You've begun to fantasize about that guy or that girl that you hope will be yours. You've begun to bow down to the God of sexual satisfaction. For still others, it's the God of acceptable appearance. You may know that you're bowing down to the God of acceptable appearance if you spent more time this morning getting yourself physically ready than you spent getting yourself spiritually ready. If you're taking time looking into the bathroom mirror but not looking at the mirror of your own soul, you may have begun to bow down to the God of acceptable appearance. There's another one in here. It's the God of nationalism, maybe political partisanship. You'll support a political party no matter what their flaws. You'll defend a politician despite his or her flaws and blemishes. You bleed blue, you bleed red. You bow down to an elephant or a donkey rather than a lamb. You're probably worshiping this God. These are not all the gods that we brought with us. This is just all I could fit in this duffel bag. I imagine you've got some more that you hid underneath your bed, that you shoved away in a corner of your closet. Maybe you, you tucked into your backpack. I think if most of us are honest, we would acknowledge that we tend to live with a divided allegiance. We want to worship the one true God and him alone. But our tendency? Our tendency is to sneak in a duffel bag full of these little gods. So how do we live with an undivided allegiance? You're here because that's what you desire. You desire to worship God above all else. So how do we do that? When it's so convenient, when it's so easy, just to grab the duffel bag and bring in our own little gods. God knew this would be a challenge. In fact, he knew that his people, Israel, would see their neighbors carrying around these duffel bags full of their little gods. And they would be tempted, like their neighbors, to begin worshiping them. So God lays out a set of expectations to guide, to to help his people, Israel, live with an undivided allegiance. Live in such a way that they worship and serve God above all else. This morning, we're going to take a look at those first three expectations. We call these commandments. The Jews actually called these the ten words. And we're going to look at the first three. But before we take a look at these three expectations, these three words, God, God frames up these expectations with an important event. He wants us to know that these expectations are rooted in past experience. They are rooted in what God has already done. They are rooted in God's grace. And that's what we see in Deuteronomy 5. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And as Isaac mentioned, that's kind of where we're going to be hanging out for the next several weeks. So if you haven't already, you might kind of bookmark that. Throw the little ribbon in your, in your Bible there, or maybe grab something that you can just toss it there in Deuteronomy 5 or 6. That's where we'll be. Deuteronomy chapter 5, our text begins with God reminding his people of past deliverance. Notice what God says in verse 6. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God wants his people Israel to know that he is a bringing out God. That his people are a brought out people. And friends, we are here today because we are a brought out people. Now we may not have been brought out of some physical slavery that we were in, but we've been brought out of something. We've been brought out of spiritual slavery. We are a brought out people who worship and serve a bringing out God. Friends, you've been brought out of your past. You've been brought out of your sin, your shame, your guilt, your regret. You've been brought out of a secret addiction. You've been brought out of pain and brokenness. Some of you have been brought out of depression. You've been brought out of loneliness. You are a brought out people serving a bringing out God. And God says, before I lay out any expectations of you, you need to remember who I am and what I've done. I brought you out. And God says, based on what I've already done, based on my grace, based on past deliverance. Now let me lay out what I expect of you. And so he tells us three expectations, three words. Word number one is the word competition. God says there should be no competition. God is without rival. God is one of a kind. There is none like him. We read in verse seven, you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying he ought to win the first place trophy for the God of your life. And there is no second place trophy. No other God gets a participation award. You don't put the God trophy up on a shelf and put other gods next to it. God is without rival. He is without comparison. There are no gods alongside him. None worthy of competition. While we were all cooped up in our homes this spring, I took some time and I watched ESPN's The Last Dance. Some of you guys probably saw that. Little 10-part little series about Michael Jordan's last year with the Chicago Bulls. I'm reminded of a story I read about Jordan's competitiveness and fierce loyalty. One night he was visiting a friend and they were going to go out for dinner. It was getting a little cooler outside. And so he asks his friend, hey, would it be okay if I, if I borrowed a jacket? And so his friend points down the hallway and says, sure, just head down the hallway. There's a closet there. Find one and anything there's fair game. So Jordan disappears down the hallway for quite a while. And when he, when he reemerges, he's got an arm full of gear, jackets and shoes and shirts, and he drops them in a pile at the feet of his friend. And then he disappears down the hall for another long while. He comes back, he's got another armful of gear, jackets and shirts and shoes, and he drops it into that pile again. You see, when, when Jordan had gone down the hallway and opened up the closet door, you know what he found? A closet that had a divided allegiance. On one side of the closet was Puma gear. On the other side of the closet was Jordan's Nike brand. And in Jordan's mind, Nike was without competition. Had no rivals. So he gathered up all the Puma gear. 
and dropped it down at his friend's feet. And then he goes to the kitchen, grabs a pair of scissors, and begins destroying every piece of puma gear in the house. Then he picks it up, carries it out to the garage, walks back to his friend, and says, Tomorrow, call my rep at Nike, and we will replace all this puma gear with Nike gear. But don't ever let me see you wearing anything but Nike ever again. And I wonder if we took a little journey down to the hallway of your life and open up that closet, would we see a divided allegiance? Would we see the little gods that you snuck in on one side of the closet and the one true God on the other side? Maybe it's time you and I take a pair of scissors and just start destroying all those little gods. God says, word number one, no competition. We serve a God who is worthy of having no competitors. Our God is without rival. Our God is one of a kind. Our God is sovereign over all. There is none like him. Our God is a rescuer. Our God is a redeemer. Our God is a deliverer. Our God is a strong tower. Our God is a fortress. Our God is a hiding place. Our God is a savior. And because our God did for us what no other God can do, he is worthy of what no other God is worthy. Our complete and total allegiance. So God says, no competitors. That's word number one. Then there's word number two. Word number two is the word comparison. God is without comparison. There is nothing in all of creation that can, that can adequately and effectively represent the living God. We read in verses eight through 10, God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Israel's neighbors had their, their little statue gods all around them. And many of these statue gods, they looked a lot like birds that you would see in the heavens above, or land animals that you would see on the earth beneath, or sea creatures that you would see in the water below. God says that there's nothing in all of creation that you could make that would adequately represent me. You, you can't take a lifeless statue to represent a living God. Especially when God has already given us a living representation. You know where we find that? You find it when you, when you look down the aisle and see the person sitting next to you. When you look in front and behind. It's you and it's me. In Genesis, God says, let us make mankind in our image. So he creates us, man and woman. We are his living representations. No lifeless object can accurately represent God, but, but we ought to be the closest thing people ever see to God. Most of you don't know my family. I've got a daughter who's almost nine years old, and, and she's a lot like me. 
She has my dark eyes. She's got my skin complexion. She has my shy, introverted personality. She even has my taste in food. One day when she was about four years old, her and I were sitting down at the table and my wife was finishing up dinner and my daughter leans in. She says, Daddy, we don't like broccoli, do we? No, broccoli's gross, we don't like broccoli. And then she smiles, but we love cookies, don't we? Yes, honey, we love cookies. And that little exchange is my daughter's way of saying, look, Daddy, I'm just like you. I'm a runner. I tend to go out early morning and get a few miles in. A couple summers ago, I was coming back from a run, and I came inside our house, and I started stretching. My daughter was sitting at the table, and she was eating her cereal, and she pops up from her her chair. She comes over to me, and she's like, I got to stretch my muscles too, Daddy. That's her way of saying, look, Daddy, I'm just like you. When she was about two, we got her this little toy computer. It's got a picture of a bear on the front. You push a button and it plays a little tune. And every time it plays a tune, she would just kind of waddle along to the music. But one evening, I hear her just typing away on this little computer. I'm thinking, what is she doing? And so I walk into to her bedroom and she's got her back to me and she's, she's sitting on her bottom with the laptop open on her lap like you're supposed to. And she's just typing away. And so I kind of yell over, hey, honey, what are you doing? Without missing a beat, she looks over her shoulder, keeps typing away and says, oh, nothing, just working on my sermon. <laughs> and that's my little girl's way of saying, look, daddy, I'm just like you. You know, in many ways, if you see my daughter, you see her daddy. And it's like God is saying, why try a lifeless comparison when I've already given you a living representation? When people see us, when they have an experience with us, they ought to get the clearest picture of God they're going to get. God ought to come into clearer focus after they spend some time with us. So when some of the, the guys or the gals in your dorm are gathering together in the lobby having kind of a heated discussion about some theological issue, when that conversation is over, everybody else in that circle should have a clearer picture of Jesus because of how you conducted yourself. When you're alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, when that evening is over, they ought to have a clearer picture of who God is because of how you treated them. When you go through that cashier's line at the grocery store, they ought to have a better picture of who God is because you went through their line. When you take that that part-time ministry position, those students, those kids, that congregation ought to have a better picture of what God is like because they spent time with you. God says, no need for a lifeless object to try to compare to me. That's the second word, no comparison. And that kind of segues into our third word. It's the word corruption. God says there should be no corrupting of his name No misrepresentation of his character. In verse 11, God says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. 
Now, you and I have probably heard that commandment in the context of don't say phrases like OMG or don't use Jesus' name as a curse word. And that's probably a fair application of that command, but I'm not sure it's the direction that God intended. You could translate this, don't carry the name of the Lord your God in an empty way. To carry God's name means to acknowledge him as master, as ruler, as Lord, as owner. And the people of Israel know what it's like to have a master, know what it's like to have an owner, because God brought them out of slavery. So God says, you ought to live in such a way that you acknowledge me as your master, and everything you say ought to accurately reflect, reflect my character. And it's easy for us sometimes to allow our empty words to misrepresent our God. Maybe we just ought to listen to what Jesus says and his half-brother James tells us. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But I know it's tempting. We find ourselves in those environments where it's, where it's easy to just kind of toss out an empty word that misrepresents God's name. Maybe it happens in your dorm room. Somebody on your floor walks in. They stand in your doorway and they say, hey, did you know we live about an hour apart? I don't have reliable transportation, but the next time that you're, you're traveling home, would you, mind, would you mind giving me a ride? I'll chip in for gas. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't really want to, but yeah, sure. Thinking to yourself that whenever that day comes that you're actually making a trip home, they will have forgotten this agreement by then. But the very next day, your mom calls, reminds you of a family birthday party the next weekend. You decide to forget to tell your floor mate, but word gets around. A few days before the weekend trip, there they are again, standing in your doorway. Hey, I hear you're traveling home this weekend. Is it still, still cool if I join you? Yeah, about that. Um, see, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be in a rush. I, I, gotta, I gotta get home, I got this family thing. I really don't have time to drive an hour out of my way to drop you off and then an hour to come pick you back up. So, so maybe next time. You know what God says? Empty words. A misrepresentation of his character. Maybe it happens when you take a, an extra shift on a Saturday. But then your friends decide to take a last minute road trip on Friday night. So Saturday morning, you call your boss up first thing in the morning. You're like, hey, um, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. I'm not feeling very well. It, it's COVID-like symptoms. I don't think I should risk it. And God says, empty words. A misrepresentation of his character. If you and I are going to live with undivided allegiance, God says, no competitors, no comparison, no corruption. But let me, let me boil it down a little bit more. I think God is telling us that the proper way to live is to live a sold out life. You know what it means for something to be sold out? It means you try to buy a ticket, but there are none available. Nobody else gets in. Nobody else gets into the ball game. Nobody else gets into the recital. Nobody else gets into the theater. God is saying, when you're sold out for me, no other God gets in. There's no room. He's calling us to live a sold-out life. Let me say it this way. A brought-out life should be a sold-out life. 
That because you and I have been brought out, we ought to live our lives completely sold out. Sold out to the only God who is worthy of our praise. To the only God who is worthy of our worship. To the only God who is worthy of all honor. To the only God who is worthy of all glory. To the only God who rescues. To the only God who redeems. To the only God who delivers. To the only one who brought us out. So friends, you can leave behind all the gods you brought in with you because you've been brought out. You've been brought out of your past, brought out of sin, brought out of shame, brought out of guilt, brought out of everything that used to hold you back. So friends, you live sold out, sold out to the God who loves you, to the God who redeemed you, to the God who is your hope, who is your future, because you've been brought out. And friends, a brought out life should be a sold out life. 